welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Mad in the Family podcast. I'm Miranda Spencer, Family Resources Editor at Mad in America. In the face of the COVID epidemic, social and academic pressures, and an uncertain future, young people are struggling. Each week, we see another news report about a mental health crisis among youth in North America, including rising suicide rates. Last fall, a consortium of physicians declared poor youth mental health a national emergency. More recently, on December 7th, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on protecting youth mental health, which prescribes actions by families, schools, governments, media, and other stakeholders. Typically, these announcements call for getting kids greater access to mental health diagnosis and treatment. As Madden America readers know, that frequently leads to more screening, more labels, and more prescriptions for psychiatric drugs. Dr. Elia Abi Jouad, in his practice with children and adolescents, his research and his teaching, is pushing back on that, that approach in favor of alternatives that more closely involve families and take environmental elements into account. He's here to tell us why and how it works. Elia Abi Jouad, MD, FRCP, is a psychiatrist working mainly with children, adolescents, and their families at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto primarily in an inpatient setting with youth in crisis. He is also an assistant professor, researcher, and clinical educator at the University of Toronto. In addition, Dr. Abijouad has done extensive research on the neurological condition Tourette syndrome. He is particularly interested in how social factors influence how we view the experiences of youth and in asking critical questions about some of our assumptions in psychiatry about diagnosis and treatment particularly the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. You work in a mainstream university and its hospital, but mm-hmm. your approach to care comes from a more critical perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. You said that the, the, quote, narrow biomedical response to kids' mental health struggles has been inadequate and even counterproductive. How so? I should start by saying, uh, Miranda, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to share my views on these topics. Um, I do want to say, uh, though, that uh, these views are not necessarily representative from either of my employers. Okay, so I just want to make that very clear at the outset. The other thing is, I love my work, including the fact that it's at uh, at an academic uh, uh, hospital and university. Um, it can be challenging. It can be frustrating. Uh, but it's also highly stimulating and rewarding. I would say maybe instead of but, I should say, and it's also highly stimulating and rewarding. Sometimes the the challenging and frustrating part is also what makes it um, uh, Mm -hmm. interesting. So basically, uh, how are my views different than, let's say, the the mainstream or the more common views when it comes uh, to these issues? So first of all, I think we need to be um, uh, some clarification is needed in terms of what we're talking about. Okay, you know we use the term often very broadly, mental health, uh, um, adolescent mental health, and such. And I want to say this is a very broad grab bag on so many, so many different things. And and so everything I'm about to sh- I'm going to be sharing today will depend very much on what we're talking about, although. You know, most of the stuff that I'm talking about is going to be very basic and can apply across the board. But 
most of what I'm referring to is what the 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 what most adolescents are are experiencing today. So, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, quote unquote mental illness, you know, people use it very loosely to refer to you know an adolescent who is uh, struggling with anxiety uh, or feeling down because of some difficulties at school or with their peers, um, and they also use it with someone who's uh, hearing voices and very disorganized and struggling as a result of that. So I want to say that I don't think it would be right to uh, paint both of these situations in, by the same brush. But uh, most of what we're talking about today is really in the realm of uh, of adolescents and emotional distress. So, so when we're referring to the rise in... Um, in uh, mental health difficulties among youth, really we're referring specifically, we're not talking about more people having, you know, schizophrenia, quote unquote. We're talking about uh, which basically adolescents uh, having mental health struggles in the form of emotional distress due to stressors in the context of psychosocial factors. Okay, mm -hmm. so this is the large majority of what we're dealing with. And yes, I think in this with these with these uh, youth um, applying the DSM, you know, this narrow biomedical approach is 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 very limited in terms of what uh, what it uh, how it helps us, and, and I think that often it's counterproductive. So first of all, just using labels from the DSM, these these DSM labels add little information. They they add little to nothing basically in terms of what's happening. You know, you basically are naming the, the emotions or difficulties the adolescent is experiencing, and then you stick disorder at the end of it. Hmm. So it's, you know, and then all of a sudden that's, so it's, it's, it's descriptive. Um, it's nothing but the descriptive label, that's all, but it's used the problem. And it's fine if we recognize it as such, that we're just describing what the person is experiencing. But no, the problem is then we use it as explanatory as in causative to what the adolescent is experiencing. And then it becomes tautological. It becomes circle reasoning. Why, uh, why are you feeling um, sad? Oh, because I've got depression. Okay. On what basis do we decide that you have depression? Oh, because, you, you, because I'm feeling sad. <laughs> so it's, it's circular. It's, it's, it doesn't really, it's, uh, uh, it doesn't really add much. The other thing is using this this biological explanations, these simplistic biological, because then we're talking, referring to, you know, we start to think, okay, then then why are we depressed and feeling sad? Well, what does it come to? So, I'm, and I've seen this. I'm not characterizing, I'm not exaggerating. I see this regularly. I'll see a young person who's feeling suicidal. So I ask them, okay, well, so why do you want to kill yourself? I'll say um, because I've got depression. Okay, I'll say so. Okay, why are you feeling sad? I'll deliberately change the term from depression to sad, and they'll look at me like, I don't know, like a chemical imbalance in my brain. It's like, what kind of stupid question is that? Why am I feeling <laughs> sad? So, so it is. It's disempowering. It takes away. Uh, it becomes. It's external to your ability to do anything about it. And the other thing is, they they. Um, we start identifying with being mentally ill. I have a chemical imbalance. I am mentally ill. They take on this role. 
And and to borrow from Sam Kamimi, someone who I highly respect, a child psychiatrist in, in the UK, uh, is a term he says, the problem becomes the problem. So hmm. no longer whatever it was that resulted in their struggles, it becomes almost secondary or no longer relevant. What's relevant now is that I've got depression, I'm feeling sad. Why am I feeling sad? Because I'm feeling sad, because I've got depression. So this is part of the issue. And, and it really what we're doing is, um, you know, it, it, the other thing is that it, it triggers an algorithmic response. So instead of us, you know, okay, let's, you know, if you see a young person who's struggling, who's feeling sad or anxious or worried, whatever, um, you want to talk to them. You want to understand what's happening with them, you know, like what's in, in your day-to-day life. But unfortunately, in this kind of, um, in this DSM world, it what happens is, in, and it triggers an algorithmic response, you know, and, and whether whether we're talking about SSRI, uh, medication, or uh, some manualized therapy, and, and often that response can be quite removed from what the, the adolescent is experiencing. By an algorithmic response, you mean if this, then that? Exactly. Yeah. So it's formulaic as opposed to, you know, really understand, get re- let's get real here. Let's figure out what this person is going through. No, it triggers something that, that's, you know, that we're following an algorithm. We're following a, a flow chart, you know, a guideline, whatever it is. And that takes precedence over what the, what the person is, is, is going through. And, and then we teach that we, we end up, we're conflating suffering, distress, sadness, with mental illness mm-hmm. and these emotions, you know, there's some recognition that oh, it's normal to have emotions. It's normal to have even sad emotions, but it depends to what extent and how long and all of that. That's you know, but the end result is really in practice, emotions become suspect mm-hmm. and 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 it undermines the, the people start worrying. Oh, I have emotion, I have sadness, maybe I've got depression, kind of. And it's very easy for any of us to wonder. You know, you read. You read even a medical textbook that's not psychiatric. You start reading about medical conditions. It's natural. People start, oh, do I have this? Do I have that? You know, especially if you have a tendency towards being on the anxious side. But, you know, like in medical school, people use the term medical student syndrome. You know, as the <laughs> medical students learning these things, they start worrying, Am I? do I have this or that? Yeah. And I would say even more so when it comes to things related to emotions and, and, and psychological experiences. So when you read, read the DSM, things become suspect, medicalized, and it undermines the value of emotions, but including not just positive emotions or not even difficult negative emotions. They have a role. What's, what's the value of these emotions? To take stock, consider bigger questions about what's happening uh, in your life and, and you know, what's the, what's going on, thinking more broadly, even beyond you as an individual. So it becomes a lost opportunity to address whatever the issues are going on. And then last but not least, I want to just, uh, in terms of this, this focus on this individual as a, bi- you know, something off in terms of from a bio, narrow bio, uh, biomedical lens is it depoliticizes the social and the economic circumstances that are contributing to one's difficulties. So there's a larger context as well in terms of in society that in terms of what's going on, but then it becomes, we can, rather than starting to pursue that as question, the focus becomes the individual. It situates whatever the problem is in society in the individual. So how, um, how is your approach to child and adolescent psychiatry different from the standard diagnosis and medication model? What would it be like if, a 12-year-old walked into your office? First of all, 
I, I want to understand their story, okay? And, and I would hope that regardless of who's seeing the patient, including someone who's well immersed in the, uh, you know, in the biomedical model, also wants to understand their story. But, but for me, it's central. This is what it's all about. And the symptoms become secondary. I do ask about symptoms, but how much weight I give them depends on the context. But in general, they're not the primary. Whereas I think often in the very biomedically, biomedically based, it's the opposite. The symptoms are given the central role. And the others, the psychosocial context ends up being more, you know, a context, you know, or a second, a secondary or an afterthought. So for me, that is central. And then, you know, I, I want to explore, you know, the, what's happening. You know, like there are some common themes with adolescence in terms of uh, the emotional distress. And there, it could be anything, but the common themes that we keep seeing is the relationships with their peers um, their relationships uh, with their families and academic pressures. Those are the most common themes. There are other things, of course, and each person has their own story. Um, but these are kind of common themes. And you want to get into them. I want to understand who this person is. What's mm-hmm. making them tick? I want to understand their background. May, what is it from their past experiences that's led them to experiencing what, what they are experiencing now? And I might not get the full story in the beginning, but I might get enough that, okay, I'm starting to understand a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And that's a start. Uh, and, and getting to know them. And then I want to I want to validate what they're going through. It's very difficult what you're going through for sure. I want to I want to show them that I I get it. I want to get it. I want to truly get it, and I want to show them that I get it. But at the same time, I want to a lot of the times as appropriate. I want to normalize what they're going through. So you know what your reactions are understandable. Your experience given given the circumstances, and there's a reassurance to this. I, I do check on safety because as we know. This is this is a major problem today these days with many adolescents, mm-hmm. but but I don't dwell on it. I don't make it as an I externalize it as if they're completely helpless and powerless when it comes to their safety. And so so I want to check on that, but 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 ultimately the focus is not the safety itself. Although you know if that's if safety is so acute that I'm afraid something's going to happen, then that takes precedence. But out, out apart from that. The, the focus is on understanding their story and helping them with that and 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 also recognizing for myself and for them that there's no quick fix. We're talking about gradual, mm. small steps and being modest and humble about, you know, my role in their lives and what I can do. And then when it comes to medications, I do use medications, I do prescribe, but I would say, you know, I, it's the way I see them and the way I use them. I don't mm-hmm. see them as fixing anything or treating anything. I'll be very explicit about that. I say we're not treating anything with medication. These are very crude tools, and really, they they depending on what medication we're talking about and the context. But basically, we're hoping to take the edge off whatever it is, so that you know we can try to pursue whatever to, that that can help you. So what have you learned from your patients and their families that other practitioners and parents can maybe apply to helping young people cope better? To be honest, I wish I could tell you anything like earth-shattering, dramatic, uh, or sophisticated here. It's really coming back to basics. It's compassion, listening, showing general, genuine interest in, in what people are, are going through and experiencing. You know, I'm, I'm you know, showing this really, that, that makes a world of a difference. Uh, you know, I'm I'm surprised sometimes. To be honest, like uh, 
often patients and families are very appreciative of when 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 I when they see me when I'm working with them. Not always, but <laughs> but often but often they, they are. And 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 I I'm sometimes taken aback by kind of how readily appreciative they are. You know, you don't need the people. People are prone, they're seeking care already. That's they've done a lot already simply from the fact that they're seeking care. So so to see someone, you know, that there's genuinely interested and caring make goes 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 a very long way. And it it has to be, you know, I you know, I tell trainees when I'm working with residents, I tell them, be genuinely interested. Like, you know, ask questions that are even not necessarily relevant to the clinical care, just because you're curious. You know, things like to really, you know, get real that way. And and I think also the other thing I want to acknowledge is I do think adolescence is more challenging. And and that's something that it's important that we recognize. I I grew up in a different time and place. And and I think mo- most of us working with these adolescents did come from a different time and, and often different place as well. So so that's something that 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 uh, I think I want to acknowledge that you know with these uh, with uh, with uh, adolescents and their struggles today, and I think another big one is communication within families. You know, adolescents don't exist in a vacuum; they're part of a family unit, they're part of a larger community, and we always want to be thinking about that. So, what's that like in the family in the relationship? Often, the adolescent is who's you know, or the young person is the person coming to see you, but really. I think of it as the families coming to see me. You know what's what's going on there. How what's the communication between them? Assuming the parents are caring, which the vast majority of the time they are, you want to check though: are these parents still connected to their young person, or has life taken over the stresses of day-to-day life? Everyone running around, and the adolescent, as often as a normal thing, wants more independence, and so they just end up doing their own thing. And the parents are busy with their own thing, and then life becomes their relationship becomes more around managing things or 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 dealing or or dealing with stressful situations, rather than an open, supportive kind of communication. So that that makes you know it's surprising often it's uh, to what extent the young person is not aware to what extent their parents care and love them and mm. really want want to be there for them. And the other way around, too, where the parents are not aware to what extent the adolescent is struggling and they had no idea. It keeps, it keeps, I keep seeing it again. You know, you'll see a young person had a serious attempt. Unfortunately, it gets to that before a parent and the parents said, I had no idea. You know, so, so you want to check the communication between them. Mm. And then, and then, and yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times a young person is surprised by how much their parents care and love them when we mm. get there. And um, and then and then uh, you know the other big thing is is acceptance. And what I mean by acceptance, I don't mean like a resignation that okay nothing's going to get better. That's what it is. Suck it up kind of thing. No, but I mean accepting the difficulties is not something that's necessarily bad. That's something to be work, worked through, and that's something to grow from. So I would say these are some of the common themes that that uh, mm. that I've learned, and 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 then accepting your parents, your parents accepting your child, and and growing together that way. So these are some of the common themes that I think, um, you know, again, we're not talking anything earth shattering here. We're talking some basics that I think can make a big difference in 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 the work uh, with uh, young people and their families. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so let's look at a, the bigger picture. What's eating kids? 
In recent years, there has been a dramatic increase in the numbers of youth experiencing and expressing emotional distress, including suicidality, um, even more so during the pandemic. And it's being called a youth mental health crisis. What do you make of this? Based on what you see in your practice, how is life more challenging for kids today? Okay. I'll share my, my, my impressions. I'll tell you these. Some of these are supported by evidence, some of them a lot of evidence, some of them might be more opinion-based and more based on my own personal experiences. As I mentioned, I grew up in a different time and place, so, so and we're all going to be, when we're dealing with kids, we're always going to be biased based on our own experiences of childhood. And so that colors a lot of how, what, what, uh, you know, how I view things. I want to acknowledge that. But it is something that I have to say, uh, you know, working since a number of years now, being witness to this dramatic rise in the number of adolescents experiencing emotional distress um, to the point that they're self-harming, to the point that they're suicidal, really often, you know, has shaken me and has kept me like often thinking about what's going on, like very, you know, concerned, but also curious and interested and so as a result, I've been kind of trying to think, okay, to understand the adolescent and their family, but also thinking more broadly, like what's going on? But the first thing I'll, I'll start with is I'll say, you know, adolescence today is more challenging. There are many things that are different today. I mean, adolescence has its own challenges, always has had its own challenges. It's part of the role of adolescence is pushing back towards, you know, uh, pushing back against what, you know, is being imposed on you. And that may be, has an evolutionary role there. So there's often been these kinds of tensions and challenges. But I think there are some things today that are particular, that are specific and unique to what adolescents are experiencing today. One, the one that has probably gotten the most attention by far, uh, uh, probably by far, is um, is the issue of smartphones and social media. And, and, you know, I think, I do think it's an issue. I do think it's something that's had an impact on many adolescents. I think there's a lot of evidence that's compelling. And, you know, we've published on this. I continue to do research on this. But, you know, the attention, you know, it's funny, like, the, the, you know, I, I published on this not because I was particularly interested in smartphones and social media, but because I was interested to understand what's going on with adolescents. But the that paper has gotten so much attention hmm. and when I, you know, and I'm happy to get into details of how smartphones and social media can impact adolescents if you'd like. But what I also um, often find myself hastening to say that it's, I don't think it's the full story. I don't mm -hmm. think it's just that. I don't think if, you know, cell phones somehow stopped, didn't exist anymore, all would be good and resolved. I think there's more to it. And I think there are other factors that I do think can interact with the issue of social media and smartphones. They can. Uh, it, it involves unique set of challenges in terms of interactions with peers. The issue of negative comparisons is an ongoing issue. The, uh, the number, you know, likes and whatnot, which is the the, the, the currency of social media. Hmm. Feeling left out is an ongoing issue. Um, misunderstandings. It's easier to assume negative intentions. It's easier to make negative comments when you don't have the real life feedback of, you know, tone of voice, body language, facial expressions, um, and cyberbullying, um, sextortion, all of these things have, have been challenges. And the thing is, you know, a lot of these things are not new, like bullying didn't come about from, you know, social media. This is unfortunately... <laughs> This is a, a long history of all these things. But the difference is now 
you take it home with you. It's not like when you come home, it's done if there's tension in the school. That comes home with you and it stays mm. with you. So often you're taking it to bed with you. You've got it in your hand as you're lying on your pillow. You have that smartphone on your hand and bullying could be coming in at midnight. Yeah. Yeah. And then good luck sleeping, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, since we're touching on sleep, I think that's another big one, which is, you know, there's th there's that emotional uh, uh, reactions. How are you going to sleep that way? And we know a large number of people take their phones to bed with them. But but it's not. But there's also the the impact of the of the of the blue light or from the digital screen suppressing your melatonin, getting and interfering with your sleep that way. And you know, if you're chronically sleep deprived, how is that going to help you with manage all these challenges that you're experiencing? The other thing that that's got, uh, happening, I think, is there's a lot of emotional contagion happening on social media. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you will see communities, I mean, and communities uh, can be very positive, you know, like if, if people are struggling and they they can relate and empathize and support each other and social media can facilitate that. And I do want to say, by the way, I'm talking about these, things, there's definitely positives that have come about from these technologies, you know, especially like now in this day and age of um, uh, physical isolation, uh, mm -hmm. physical distancing, and the pandemic and such, it's 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 allowed a lot of people to stay connected, to commiserate about mm -hmm. their experiences. It, there's a lot of positive that come from it. I don't want to completely dismiss that, but but um, I do want to emphasize how you know the, at the same time there's been a lot of negatives, including in the pandemic, because I think what's happened is people are spending even more time on on these technologies. So we're coming back to what I was saying. So the sense of community and such can be certainly very positive, but oftentimes it's not in a very it's not in a very productive way. It's more wallowing in each other's misery and bringing each other down. Mm. There's a, some romanticization of 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 being unwell and normalizing of self harm. And you know, in extreme cases, there's like sharing pictures of cuts or talking about practical ways to commit suicide and whatnot. So there's a lot of emotional contagion going on, and we've seen that shoot up in the pandemic, by the way, in so many ways. You know, and then the issue with these things also is they're made to be addictive. They're 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 designed to hook you up to capture your attention, and so it can be hard hard to stop and get off of these things. And it can happen at the end expense of other things, of other healthy things like having real life relationships, time with your family, exercising, doing your schoolwork, falling behind your schoolwork, all that. So anyhow, all this has been. To say that yes, I do think, and and again, this is not just theoretical. Everything I'm saying, there's some fair bit of evidence that is very concerning in terms of the impact of these things. But I am very convinced that I do not think this is the full story. I do think there are other things that are going on. You know, another one is the uh, family structures are very different today uh, compared to before. Uh, if you're in a large Western city where many people in that city did not grow up in that city and, and as a result do not have extended families and extended social networks there, you know, at, at best you've got the nuclear family and, and sometimes just one parent. And so you don't have the same kind of extensive social support uh, networks that can help uh, contain what the person is going through, what their family might be experiencing. So, you know, I'll, I'll share something uh, personal you know, a few years ago when my daughter was, I think she was either six or seven at the time, she asked my wife, mommy, if if um, if both you and daddy died, who would take care of us? And, and she wasn't upset or anything. She was really generally just asking, you know, 
At least she wasn't visibly upset. She was saying, I know if you died, daddy would take care of us. And if daddy died, you would take care of us. But what if you both died? Like, because that's what her world is just mm-hmm. the two of us. Mm-hmm. Whereas I grew up in, a, again, different time place where such a question would have never occurred to me because it was a non-issue. There was a whole village, for mm-hmm. better and for worse, but there was a whole village that took a parental role so so that's that's another thing is i think the change in the family structures is is um, is an issue today and it is a more challenging role in terms of what the expectations are for everyone to achieve it's much more competitive and 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 then the other thing is you know what's happening with the parents you know when we're talking about a young person we need to think about beyond the young person. We need to think about the the, the 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 environment they're in. And if the adults in their lives are under stress, guess what? You know, if that, that's going to affect the young person. And we know parents today are under stress. It is more difficult. The job expectations are, are high. You're expected to do more and more with less and less. Uh, we know there's a rise in social inequality. Uh, there's been a significant rise of social inequality across much of the world, especially in the last uh, couple of decades. In fact, it started more than uh, earlier than that, but especially in the last couple of decades. And there, I should say, there is tons of evidence about the relationship between social inequality, meaning the gap between the top earners and the bottom earners in a society, and all sorts of measures of well-being in that society. Uh, complaints of depression, anxiety, uh, suicidality, homicidality, incarceration rates, drug use, teen pregnancy, obesity, like you name it, the more this gap is, the worse that society is on all these measures. And we know that uh, inequality, social inequality has been rising in the last few decades. So maybe no surprise that we're seeing these kinds of struggles. So um, in terms of public messaging, um the, our Surgeon General in, in the United States just came out with a report basically saying mental health crisis in youth and what we should do about it. Um, but you have said in the past that mental health awareness campaigns in schools and possibly other may have contributed to the youth mental health crisis. Um, how so? I think, I think these campaigns have been well-intentioned. The message, the intended message is if you're struggling, if you have a mental, you know, emotional distress, if you're psychological distress, whatever it is, it's not your fault, quote unquote. You have a mental illness, quote unquote. It's not a moral failing. It's just a brain disease, like any other disease. That that's been the intention, and and the, the idea of of encouraging people to talk and seek care is not a bad thing in and of itself. But the problem is this narrow biomedical messaging is is problematic in in this population that's very impressionable you know as i've said earlier first of all it's pathologizing distress uh you know the idea was to destigmatize but it's gone towards romanticizing hmm. uh, you know that's what adolescents are 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 have gone to these days um i'm talking paint a, a broad brush of course here but not everyone but many um the other thing is the focusing on symptoms, uh, labeling things as having a disorder. It reifies the symptoms as a problem rather mm-hmm. than having understanding of the broader experiences and context. These simplistic biomedical messages, as I said, you know, they're disempowering. The problem becomes the problem. They identify as become as mental illness, and and so and then and then it becomes the young people start getting the message. 
I mean, everyone's having a mental illness. Everyone's got depression, self-harm, suicidal. It becomes normalized, romanticized in an adver- inadvertent way. That's I, uh, my fear what's happened. Uh, I saw uh, a, a great talk by someone, I forget her name now, but she was someone from um, the Save the Children. And, you know, they have projects around the world. And uh, she was talking about uh, some project in a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. She was sharing about some of their research work there. And, and, and she was talking about how they, they wanted to check in with adolescents in terms of what their emotional experiences are, what they're going through. And they were being so thoughtful about how they word their questions and how they ask adolescents, their young people, basically. You know, they, they don't want to just ask them, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling suicidal? Do you want to kill yourself? They don't want, because they were concerned about giving the impression towards these adolescents but they should be feeling that way. Maybe, you know, if we're asking, maybe others are, you know, we should. And, you know, I thought, boy, that's so thoughtful. I wish we had, I wish we had these kind of, uh, we were as careful and cautious around these things. I'm not saying we shouldn't be looking into these things, but we need to be thoughtful about when we're looking into these things with our adolescents today, whether it's our, you know, survey projects or intervention campaigns or screening and that kind of thing. So the power of suggestion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 an impressionable, particularly impressionable population. Well, let's talk about all, some alternatives to this narrative. You've um, talked about taking a broader view of youth mental health struggles within family context and social context. You wrote in your article about the. Um, the smartphones, there's a need for public awareness campaigns and social policy initiatives that promote nurturing home and school environments that foster resilience as youths navigate the challenges of adolescence in today's world. So what kind of a campaign like that, what would that entail? Thank you for noticing that point, by the way, <laughs> because it seems like, you know, the, the article is about smartphones and social media. So why am I talking about, you know, home and school environments and such, you know, it might seem like, okay, yeah, sure, some generic statement about the importance of, but for me, this is central. And, you know, yes, I think I think uh, the campaigns, you know, we talk about campaigns, we're talking about also awareness around smartphone and, and, and digital technologies and, and social media and such. But I was thinking more broadly that uh, we need to be thinking about policy initiative policy initiatives aimed specifically at social and environmental and under uh, and economic factors that uh, underpin family well-being and nurture uh, youth resilience and and actually the reference to this that i used for this is very is a key reference that i think is very much uh, worth reading and it's the, it's the last reference in, in the paper but it's basically an open statement uh, from the former un special rapporteur on, on the right to health, uh, uh, Dainius uh, Puras. He's a Lithuanian psychiatrist, and I think he's been interviewed for a podcast at uh, Madden America. I listened yes. to him, actually, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was lovely listening to him. I think about it. I'm very humbled to be interviewed myself now. But where he talks about, you know, when we're talking about good mental health and well-being, it's not about the absence of a mental illness, but we need to be thinking about the factors, the, the social, political, economic, environmental factors that allow people to live life fully with dignity, 
with rights and equitable pursuit of, of their potential. And this is key here. That's what we need to be thinking about. It's like, you know, one way I think about it is, you know, if if someone has easily stepped on a nail and they're in pain as a result of that. So is our focus, is the problem that there's pain and that's what we should be addressing is the pain or is the pain a sign, an indication of something else? Then that's what we should be addressing. We should be addressing the nail, not so much the pain. Sure, we can address mm-hmm. the pain, but but it's the nail that should be our 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 target uh, ultimately. So you know, when youth are struggling so severely, what does it say about society at large? Mm-hmm. You know, like it's 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 you know, we're talking about lo- a lot. Struggling like this should not worry us as a society. There's something off in a society when the future generation is experiencing so much struggle. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, what does it say about you know the adults? What's happening with the adults? It's not even just about youth. It's about mm-hmm. the adults. It's, it's you know the the adults in their lives, um, their their parents, their families, their teachers, and other other pe- adults in their community. You know that we should think about socioeconomic policies that uh, that result in that. Uh, you know, is that uh, we do recognize this as an issue. I don't think it's even controversial. Mm-hmm. No longer, I, even in the states, I don't think you can be called a socialist or communist for <laughs> for, for for talking about this. You know, it's it's uh, we do need to think about that. We do need to think about. You know, there's been some clear cut policies in in much of the Western world since the early '80s. Uh, that have resulted in increased stress on individuals with increased debt, lack of job security, um, increased productivity expectations and such. And societies are struggling and the youth in these societies are struggling. You know, I mentioned teachers. There are studies that show that teachers' health, mental health well-being is associated with students' mental health well-being. Hmm. So if the teachers are in precarious job conditions, if the teachers are going through life hardships, you know, the parents are going through these hardships. So we need to be, so so it cannot be just empty campaigns or your rhetoric. It has to be, um, it has to be clear-cut policy initiatives that address these things. And we need to be thinking about communities. I think part of the issue is there's, you know, with the focus on individuals and maybe even in, in individual free, freedom and liberty, which I think are good things, but has it come at the cost of connectedness, of a sense of belonging and community, a sense of meaning and purpose that goes beyond the individual? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, and I think that is important. So, so I think these we need to be thinking about promoting formation of communities. And you know, I think it's important that that people feel a sense of belonging to something. They're not just floating around doing their own thing, kind of thing. What is that? Whether they, they might belong to whatever that community is, it might be based on you know racial, ethnic uh, belonging. It might be based on religious belonging. They 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 belong to some worship community. It might be based on their lo- physical location, the neighborhood. It might be based on a cause. But I think it's important that 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 this is that people feel that they their lives are meaningful and there's something that some bigger purpose. Uh, that uh, that they that they are part of. Have you um, looked at the uh, Surgeon General's report at all? I looked enough that it gave me a, 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 a bit of a sense of things. I thought it was quite interesting, actually. In, in what way? Do, do you think it's overall um, constructive or going down the wrong path? Or 
Well, I would say, so my thoughts is it's a mixed bag. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I will say uh, there were a lot of things that I thought were positive. Um, I, I was in fact very impressed with a lot of the things, especially in the early, in the beginning and the earlier part. They recognize very explicitly the name. They name some of the issues that have been going on that 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 make uh, things more, that have made things more difficult for uh, for youth today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the um, uh, the similar things that you know that I've been talking about uh, mm-hmm. uh, today. Uh, they identify people who are disenfranchised or have difficulties, or you know, like uh, so so uh, people disabilities, racial ethnic minorities. Uh, low-income youth, uh, immigrant households, and and such homelessness. So they identify all of these things. Okay, good. Uh, they also talk about social inequality. I thought that's like wow. And uh, you know, this is the Surgeon General of the United States of America. And 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 I I think I searched the term. If you look up social inequality in that report, it features a number of times it comes out. I thought that was really good. They talk about mental health being shaped by many factors, genes and brain chemistry, fine, but they also emphasize the role of relationships with family, friends, neighborhood conditions, larger social forces and policies. They talk about media and and culture. I thought a number of things they said, you know, ensuring healthy children and families will take an all-society effort. Wow, very impressed. And uh, including policy, institutional, they talk about systemic change is essential. Uh, and, they say, and, they, and he says our obligation to act is not just medical, it's moral. So all of this I thought was excellent, really. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed and really set the stage for something very nice. And, um, and rather than just focusing on the individual, there's something wrong with you, your mental mm-hmm. illness, your brain and stuff, thinking in these broad terms. Um, there was something I thought, you know, even early on where he says mental health challenges are real, common and treatable. That I'm not a big fan of this idea that, you know, it's it's something the term treatable, again, medicalizes it. It's like mm-hmm. the problem is the mental health challenges. It's the pain in your foot from the nail. No, the problem is not the mental health challenges or the pain in the foot. The problem is the context that's leading to that. And that's that's mm-hmm. what I want to emphasize. And again, in the intro, they, they give a lot and then when they talk about the suggestions, they give suggestions about what different people can do. They talk about mm-hmm. suggestions for individual young people, suggestions for parents and families, suggestions for care providers, I, if I remember correctly, educators too. And I thought generally these were very good too. There were a lot of good, you know, holistic approaches looking at big picture. I thought it was very good. Where it broke, broke down is when it came to suggestions at the more macro level. Mm-hmm. I thought that was that was uh, that was actually a letdown. I have to say, you know, when it comes to talking about the workplace and at the governments, I thought that was key. Okay, what is that? What are they going to advocate? They're talking about social inequality, so they use the term social inequality. I don't know, maybe a dozen times in the intro of this report, but then when it comes to the government interventions, it's not 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 even once it doesn't come up the term. So the suggestions at the macro level, both the workplace environment. So uh, first of all, the mere fact that they're talking about workplace environment, I thought was good mm-hmm. because they're ta- they're thinking about the parents, the workplace environment of the parents, because you need a decent workplace environment for the parents, for the parents to be well, for the youth to be well. But I, the, the specific remedies they were suggesting there, as well as the governments at all levels, state, local, uh, and, and, and federal, I thought fell very short because there 
the, the emphasis was more targeted at individuals. So it was ran along the themes of screening, diagnosing, treating, increasing access to care, that kind of thing. It came mm-hmm. back to the individual as opposed to looking at, okay, what can government do in terms of, I mean, you talk about social, socioeconomic inequality so many times in the introduction of the report. Mm-hmm. There's no discussion of how are we going to talk about wealth redistribution, you know, taxation. Like Maybe that's too hot a topic in the U.S. I'm not sure. But but basically, that's where I thought things uh, things fell short, unfortunately, yeah. with this report. Well, if you are the Surgeon General, um, what would you suggest that I think probably schools, parents, and young people themselves would probably be um, the closest things that could have an, an effect in a more immediate way? What would your recommendations be that should change? Well, I mean, I think... Um, I think it's important to be humble here, you know, so we need to do something, but we need to question what we're doing and we need to continue to explore. And we don't want to just do things for the sake of doing them and end up down blind paths. So we need to be careful about what's, where do we have enough evidence where things could be better and do, do things there. And then otherwise we need to take initial steps, be thoughtful while also trying to understand what the issues are and and what the, what the consequences are of our interventions. So, for example, you know, again, sorry that I keep coming back to socioeconomics, but but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence there. There's you know a lot of it is cross-sectional, but some of it is longitudinal. And we're talking we're not even talking about the poor countries. We're talking about in the rich countries. Uh, so North America, Western Europe, the rich countries of Southeast Asia. So the relationship between socioeconomic inequalities and health measures in a society. And by the way, all of this is replicated within the U.S. across all the states. The same findings again, the bigger Mm. the socioeconomic inequality within a specific state, the worse these different health measures in the state. So knowing this already, that says a lot in terms of things that can be done just by, I think, maybe reversing some of, if I may use the term, neoliberal policies that have Mm. been uh, dominant in the last for decades now and 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 giving you know we you know the us is famous for the american dream which means what is the american dream is being able to achieve more than you know the the background you came from basically social mobility basically doing better than your parents so social mobility is is harder in a society where you have more socioeconomic inequality in fact you know to be able to do that now the american dream in the us it's like it's very hard you're much better off if you want to live the American dream, as someone said, you should move to Denmark. But because the American dream did exist before, this wasn't always the case. You know, prior to the 80s, you know, if we go to 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, there was, you know, the the, the balance of power between uh, corporations and 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 uh, workers was very different. You had much more labor rights. Uh, so these are not kind of new fixes or having to reinvent the wheel. There are Mm -hmm. things that we know either from past experience or even from different systems around the world today where where things make for a much more healthy society, a more uh, more equitable and fair society. So so these are things that that, that, working conditions, labor rights, work-life balance, you know, all the conditions that promote communities. Uh, these are things we we need to be we need to be thinking about more broadly. Yeah. When it comes to more you know individuals, I would say you know uh, um, you know you mentioned a whole bunch of different people. So 
Okay, so if we talk about, uh, so first of all, let's say parents. Uh, parents, I would say the key is what I said earlier. Talk to the kids, maintain open communication, maintain a relationship with your young person. Uh, spending, making sure to spend quality time together, not just, you know, not just time dealing with things that need to be done. Things that need to be done, fine, they need to be done, you know, whether it's schoolwork or whatever, the running of the house, the day-to-day issues, but but actual actual time together and maintaining a relationship, you know, as we're all running around dealing with our day-to-day stressors, as I said, we often forget parents grow apart from their kids, uh, you know, with their adolescence. So reconnecting, maintaining a relationship, you cannot, if you have not, if you're not talking regularly to your kid about you know, things that really matter to them. If if you're talking mainly about things that you need to talk about to get by on a day-to-day basis, and then your kid is struggling by some things that are very difficult emotionally, maybe embarrassing, you can't expect that all of a sudden they're going to talk to you about it easily. Or, you know, they're struggling and all of a sudden you say, oh, I need to talk to you. You're struggling. What's going on? It's not, it doesn't come. So maintaining the relationship, maintaining channel of communication as much as you can. And in a developmentally appropriate way, right? If they're younger kids, take charge. You're the parent. And as they Mm -hmm. grow older, give them more independence, but maintain that connection. Okay. Don't be afraid to take charge. Don't be afraid for your kid to have be under distress. So, you know, I find there's such an aversion to seeing any distress in our kids. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's a concern across the age range. I see it with young kids. You know, the kids is upset, doesn't want to leave the park. And, you know, you'll see this big dad negotiating with this three-year-old trying to convince him to leave the park. It's like, mm-hmm. no, who's in charge here? Just you're in charge. He's just three and that's it. You contain, you take, and it's okay. He's going to be upset. That's fine. So there's this fear and I see it all the time, including in my personal life. And I'll tell you, I'm not, I, I don't raise my kids the way my parents raised me, which is much more strict and harsh and such. But mm-hmm. still, I think it, it's important that, that you know, we do need to have, uh, it's it's okay that they experience distress in young age and learn to, and I'm not saying we should be on purpose torturing our kids. I'm not saying anything <laughs> of the sort. Hopefully that's not misunderstood. But we need to, we should not be depriving them of the opportunity to experience the stress and learn to regulate and to work, learn to work through it. And guess what? If they experience that at a, at a younger age, it prepares them better for adolescence because guess what? Adolescence ain't an easy ride. And then when they experience the stress in adolescence, that also we're learning to work through that will prepare them for later on too. If they're experiencing distress in adolescence, again, there's no need to be, to be uh, you know, terrified, to panic about it. It's, it's okay. You can tolerate that. You don't want, because I think, again, our fear, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, I think, uh, and I want to give parents a break here, acknowledge, it's hard to parent. You know, I can relate. There's unfortunately no good manual. There's lots of manuals there, but but I'm not sure they're, they're you know, and each kid is different and there's no single correct way to parent. I, I should be very kind of acknowledged that, you know, I'm often humbled here by, you know, I'm learning from my patients and their families because, you know, I see things happening that patterns that I recognize I'm doing with my kids Mm. that I was blind to. And I only kind of recognize it when I see it as an outsider with the families I'm working with. I'm like, "Uh oh, so anyhow, I I think most parents are very caring and well-meaning, but in their caring and well being well-meaning and good intentions, sometimes what happens is 
because they don't want to see their kids suffering. And what parent wants to see their kids suffering? But it's more than that. They, they get very uncomfortable seeing the distress in the kid. They, they, they want them to get over it quickly. They want to dismiss it. Become, it comes across as dismissive because like, no, no, you shouldn't be feeling that way. You're all good, you know, or look at what you have in your life. Look, it's all great. Look at what everyone else is going through, you know, and it can come across as pretty harsh and invalidating, even though it's coming from a well-meaning place. Or right away, no, no, you can't be feeling this way. You know, let's let's fix this right away, kind of thing. And the kid is like, wait, hear me out first. You know, I'm struggling here. So, so I'm characterizing here a little bit, but maybe not that much by that much. But anyhow, so you wanna you you wanna show your kid it's okay. You can take it in, and you 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 can see what they're going through. Take it in, make sure you get them, and make sure you show them that you get them. Make it clear to them, I'm always there for you. And then next, you know, okay. Now, how, what can we do about this? And so that's, and, and there's no need to be perfect as a parent. You're going to get it wrong often. I regularly get it wrong. Hmm. And, and, and that's okay. You know, there's some basics in terms of love and care, but not being perfect is not, it's okay. It's more than okay. Because in fact, with your kid, it's okay. As long as you work through it, that's how growth happens. Hmm. So this is in fact, part of it. And remembering it's not a quick fix. It's a gradual, small steps. You need to care for yourself. If you're struggling and barely keeping your head above the water, then that is going to be harder, right? I mean, parenting, you know, is is difficult in the best case of, of, of circumstances. So, but if you're already struggling for whatever life circumstances, so you need to think what, how can you make things better, easier for you? Okay, give yourself a break. Uh, is there any, are there any, um, uh, sources of support you can seek. Sometimes it's easier said than done, but you need to be thinking about that. Who can I, who can I reach out for help here? And along these lines, also as I mentioned earlier, the importance of a sense of community. You know, I I, I live and raise my kids in Toronto, and I'm not originally from Toronto. We don't have family around here, so I go out of my way to try to create for my kids a sense of kind of continuity, a sense of community that is not just my wife and I. That there's a sense of belonging. So, and as I've said earlier, it could be anything. It could be based on neighborhood, place of worship, or some cause that you are, you know, like or a combination of of these. Uh, so whatever it is. Um, the other thing is, I, I do want to say is as much as I'm talking about, you know, these basics and they are important, they are the fundamentals, I would say, uh, it is also important to be thinking, you know, am I concerned like about my child's well-being to the point that like they might do something, right? Like, so mm -hmm. there are signs of something really serious. So so you, you do need to seek out help, it might even be professional help, but but if you if you are, if you think there's some acute thing, you know, if obviously if there's going to do something impending, you call in or whatever it is. But, uh, but uh, uh, so I'm not talking about those situations. Uh, I, I'm talking about kind of more fundamental. And the, I'm talking about the, what I'm hoping is would, would, would avert the child reaching to those, uh, those, mm -hmm. um, uh, to that point. Right. So you never, so you never get to that point because. The well, things would, that that create resilience are kind of already taking place. That, that's right, and I'm I'm not going to say never, but you know, hopefully, much less so. And if kids are struggling getting there, you're together there with them already with them. And then the other adults in their lives is is the teacher. Same thing, you know. 
you want to check the well-being of the teachers. The schools should be thinking about what are the working conditions that are going to make, help teachers be feel that they're doing something meaningful, that they're they have they have autonomy, that they are, uh, you know, that there's a cause here. There's a sense of mission, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of their work. And 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 the, the again, it's it is key. You want to establish trusting, open relationship with your students. Uh, you want to inspire them. You know, don't don't. You know, I wouldn't want teachers underestimating how much of an influence they can make in the kids' lives. You know, kids they, they can be pretty resilient, but they need they need one trusting adult at least. You know, sometimes if for whatever reason, if it's not happening at home, the teacher can make a big difference. There are many kids. Uh, you know, if I if we chatted you and I now. We will probably think of teachers that have had a big impact on us, you know, by all the way back from from school. So, so, so teachers can have can have a big influence. They have a huge role helping to raise this new generation. So, 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 so schools and teachers have a lot that they can do. And then, in terms of the young people themselves, I would say, first of all, I'd want to. It, it depends on the person. I'd want to ask them. I'd want to talk to them. And and you know, I would encourage young people. If any young people are listening to this, you know, they first of all, if they're adolescents, they already know relationships are important. Adolescence is a large part about uh, relationship, but I would encourage them to have real relationships, not just digital relationships. I think digital connections are fine. In fact, they can be very positive as long as they're supplementing your real life relationships, as long as not they're not replacing your real life mm. relationship. If there's bullying in your life, whatever form it is, um, if you see it happening, stand up to others. Uh, you know to, to, that that can make a big difference. Uh, even people people sometimes you might see a peer feeling excluded. See, is there anything that you can do to help them a little bit? That can make go a very long way. But also think about being part of you know anything that you can do. You know to be helping others. When you're helping others, when you're caring for towards others, that helps you feel better. Whether it's volunteering, being more mm -hmm. active in your community. And then I would say, and this is key here, is uh, is talk to the adults in your life. They mm -hmm. really want to. They really want to listen to you. They want to be there for you. And and definitely, most of all, first of first and foremost, is your family, your parents. If it's not your parents for whatever reason, other family members. And if that's not possible, other adults in your life, reach out. Okay, I can tell you, adults do care. Or it could be a professional, but they do care. Okay. And 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 if of course if you're if you're feeling to the point that it's unsafe, I hope you don't get to that point. Uh, but if it is to that point, talk to someone. Okay, uh, do something. Don't just don't just uh, keep it that way. You don't have to always be feeling this way. And and things can and will be better. So that that's what I would. These would be my thoughts towards young people. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Miranda. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate and value the opportunity to, to have uh, to be part of this. Our guest has been Alia Abijwad. I'm Miranda Spencer, and this has been Mad in the Family. Thank you for listening to the Mad in America podcast. Visit madinamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.